Good morning, Life Church. Good morning. <clears throat> like the shirt, Nicole, we should all smile. Just like uh, Pastor Tom was teaching us last week, we should be filled with joy. If you guys don't know me, my name is Donald Coles. I go by Donald, Don. Recently, some people in the youth group and young adults have been calling me Donnie. And I wasn't quite sure what I thought of it at first, but it's starting to grow on me a little bit. So thanks for coming out here today. Uh, thanks for tuning in the live stream, guys. Um, I thought it'd be interesting to share two truths and a lie about myself today. So two things that are true and one thing that's a lie, and hopefully you guys can catch it. So I ride a motorcycle. I do winter camping every single winter. And I am 49 years old. <laughs> so I'll give you guys a second to think about that. Which one of those things is a lie? Yeah, I am actually, <laughs> I am actually 26 and three-fourths years old, and I do ride a motorcycle sometimes, not today because it was kind of wet outside, and I do winter camping, a survival trip every year, so if any of you gentlemen want to challenge yourself this year, come talk to me. Um, I thought it'd be interesting to share a little bit about what God has been doing in the young adults group and youth group, just for two minutes here. Uh, we've done a lot of great teaching. We did a whole series on the history of the church. I know, a very nerdy series. We read through the Gospel of Mark, and this year I had an ambitious goal of reading through all the New Testament epistles. And we have one left, the Book of Romans, and we're going to start that this Tuesday. So, after reading all the New Testament epistles and the Gospel of Mark, um, hopefully God is going to give us a well-rounded view of all the scriptures. We don't just cover boring things in the Young Adults group. We also do some very fun stuff. Like yesterday, some of us went skydiving, and I got a cool little snippet here from our trip there. Uh, we have a Nerf war planned in just a couple weeks, so all you kids in here, come out to that on the 16th. We covered the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11. We covered some attributes of God, his love, mercy, justice, how our God is infinite and he never changes. And we talked about how to own your faith and what to do when you have doubts, which we're going to get to actually a little bit today. So why do I do all of this? Why do I work these ministries with the young adults and the youth group? It's not just because I like to pelt your kids when you play dodgeball in here. That is a perk, but there's a better reason. And it has to do with my testimony. That's what I'm going to share today. Um, and my talk today, and you can pull up your notes in the uh, bulletin or you can view it online, uh, is called Searching for God. And the question I asked myself and I want to ask you is, what is the truth? What is the truth? You know, you could say what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. All truth is equally valid. I don't think that works out, uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit. There's many, many faiths in this world, many different religions, and throughout my life I've met several people of different faiths. I grew up in Virginia, and I had a best friend who was Muslim, and his mom was actually our babysitter, and she would try to teach us Arabic so that hopefully we could learn the Quran. In high school, I made friends with lots of people. I had a Buddhist friend. I had a Wiccan friend who actually tried to invite me to a Wiccan convent twice. And if you guys don't know this, in Barneville, there's actually a place called Circle Sanctuary that was founded in 1974, and it's the epicenter of Wicca in Wisconsin. So very, very close to home, uh, we have witches. And this week, actually, they have an annual ceremony, Thursday through Monday. They'll be meeting midnight to sunup, doing God knows what kind of pagan rituals. So, not to scare you guys, but throughout this week, uh, just pray that God is going to 
uh, protect this nation and against these witches. I've worked with Catholics, atheists, agnostics. I've talked to over 20 Mormons over the past three and a half years, and I've talked to a handful of Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't know if that's born, born any fruits, but I'm always praying for them, and hopefully God has done things that I can't see uh, with my own eyes. So I've met a lot of people of different faiths, and you guys can raise your hand in here. How many of you guys have met someone, a friend, family, coworker, someone that does not believe what you believe? Yeah, that should be pretty much all of us in this room. So I hope my message is relevant to you today, because this is hopefully going to equip you for those conversations. And if you're here in this room and you do not believe in Christianity, this message is definitely for you, because I'm going to share 10 evidences of the Christian faith. So... Uh, I used to be nervous about speaking. Uh, I think I've spoken probably about 100 times now uh, with the youth group and the young adults group. And I don't view it as uh, the pressure's on me. Speaking is an act of worship, and I'm just glorifying God's name. It's all about him. So today, I hope it's not a lecture. I hope it feels more like a genuine conversation, getting to know me and my personal story, how I used to search for this stuff growing up, discovering the answers. And I want to share a word of wisdom for you that Mordecai shared with Esther. He said, who knows if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. And if you guys know the story of Esther, God delivered them uh, through uh, almost an extinction. Uh, There was an edict that was going to be passed, and God delivered them from that. And so the place that Esther is in, the certain time that she was in, the people around her, the fact that she was made queen, God worked all this stuff for the good of his people. And so the question I want to propose to you is what if God has placed you in this specific time, in this specific place, with the specific people around your life for such a purpose as this, to share the gospel with those people and bring them to the light of Christ? And it's actually not just a suggestion. In Matthew 28, it's actually called the Great Commission. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and earth, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, name of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of this age. So just a short, short story of my, of my testimony. Uh, when I was in high school, I had lots of questions about the Christian faith. I grew up in this church. Some of you guys remember me as a, a young menace. But throughout high school, I had lots and lots of questions. Why is the Bible real? How do I know that God is true? How do I know that Christianity is the one true religion? And I would pester my leaders with these questions, and I did a bunch of studying. And after two years of searching the evidence, I came to the realization that not only is Christianity the one that comes out on top of the evidence, it is the only one left standing. So I put all the major world religions through a series of four tests, and they all cracked. Christianity held up. Nothing I threw at Christianity All the skeptic claims that I threw at it did not even make a dent. And so hopefully I want to share those evidences with you today. So a couple fun facts about world religions. Did you guys know there's over 4,300 different religions in the world today? That's a lot. There are still people in the world that believe in the Greek and Roman gods, gods like Zeus, Poseidon, Persephone, those guys. Mormons, they aren't allowed to drink coffee or alcohol because they feel it's addictive, addictive, and we should be of sober minds. Maybe they have a little bit of truth to that. I know some of you guys are a little addicted to your coffee this morning. <laughs> Jehovah's Witnesses would rather die than to take a blood transfusion, and they won't even celebrate their birthdays. 
because they are pagan. Jainists, they believe life to be so precious that they will wear a face mask so that they will not accidentally swallow a bug and kill it. So Jainists were the ones that started the trend of wearing face masks long before COVID even hit us. <laughs> so there's lots of different religions in the world, and as Christians, we are commanded to defend our faith. Uh, and this, there's a fancy word called apologetics, and it comes from the Greek word apologia, meaning to speak away. So if you are accused of something, you would be asked to come before the courtroom and give a defense for yourself, an apologia. And this word is found in 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So that's my goal of this message today is to equip you with 10 pieces of evidence so that when you're asked, why do you believe in Christianity? you can give at least somewhat of an answer. So I'm going to gauge the room real quick, and you guys can get your thumbs out here. How confident do you feel defending your faith? Do you like think you want to faint and run away and hide? Or do you feel like you can go toe-to-toe with some skeptics? All right, I see a couple thumbs up. That's pretty awesome. I see a couple people that are kind of in midway. Good, good. I hope at the end of this talk we can get that thumb just a little bit higher. 2 Timothy 3.16 is our theme verse for today. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, so the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So we're given the Bible, and the Bible is for us and equips us for every good work. So you could ask, why is there a need to defend the faith? Why is there a need to know about these evidences to defend Christianity against skeptics. And lots of people like to say that we can just coexist. If you guys have heard this before, all religions lead to the same place. We're all just working out our relationship with God in different ways. And God's okay with that. We all have some piece of the truth. Well, here's what the Bible says. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Except through Jesus, no one can come to the Father. So Christianity makes a truth claim about salvation. It has a monopoly on it, that no other way leads to heaven except through Christ. So a truth claim, when you say one thing is true, by default, you automatically say everything else is false. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if I say 2 plus 2 equals 5, am I right or am I wrong? wrong. Well, that's awfully rude of you. <laughs> that's not considerate. Why do you guys have to be so judgmental? These are the things people say about Christianity when we say that Jesus is the only way, that we're judgmental, we're rude, we are exclusive. But the Bible makes a truth claim. And in order for that to be true, that means everything else is false. So 2 plus 2 will never equal 6. It'll never equal 345. It'll never equal 18. 2 plus 2 will always equal 4. And just to prove this point a little farther, I'm going to talk about just a couple religions real quick. Mormons. Who in here has had a conversation, an encounter with Mormons in their life? They've knocked on your door. Maybe you've seen them walking on the streets. Mormons believe that the God of this universe is just one God among a long lineage of gods. There could be an infinite number of gods that came before him. And the God of our universe lived on an earth uh, before us, 
and he lived out a perfect life according to his father, and he had many wives, and because of that, he was exalted to godhood, and he created our universe. And in just the same way, we too can become gods of our own universes if we follow God's righteous plan. And it used to be that you had to have multiple wives. But that was made illegal in 1862, so Mormons had to change that. Isaiah 43, 10 through 11, here's what the Bible says. Believe in me and understand that I alone am God. There is no God, there has never been, and there never will be. I, yes, I am the Lord, and there is no other Savior. So Mormonism says that there are many gods, and our God of this universe is just one among a huge lineage of other gods. Whereas the Bible says there's only one. There's never been a God before him. There will never be a God after him. He's it. So Christianity and Mormonism cannot both be true because their truth claims contradict each other. Islam. Mormons are very... Muslims. Muslims are very devout in their faith. And in Islam, you have to follow the five pillars of Islam. You have to pray seven times a day, always point towards Mecca. You must fast once a year at Ramadan for 30 days and make a pilgrimage to Mecca once a year. But here's the thing. The Quran makes claims about Jesus. It says that Jesus did not actually die on the cross. He was made to appear to be dead, but God saved him from that death. And the Bible also says that, or, I'm tripping up here. Muslims say that Jesus was not God. Whereas the Bible says the opposite. In Matthew 16, 21, from then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. And here's it. Here's the thing. He would be killed, but on the third day he'd be raised from the dead. The Bible also says this in John 8. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. At that point, they picked up stones to throw at him because Jesus was hidden from them, but Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. So Islam says that Jesus was just a man. He wasn't God. Islam said that Jesus didn't die on the cross, but the Bible says he did die on the cross, and the Bible says he is God. So Christianity and Islam cannot both be true because their truth claims contradict each other. So I hope we can see a pattern. Not all the religions in the world can be right. They can all be wrong, or one of them can be right. And hopefully you guys know that I'm a Christian. So I believe Christianity is the one true religion. So because there's so many different religions in the world, we said there is 4,300. How can we learn enough about each of these religions to be able to defend them adequately against Christianity? I don't know about you guys, but I don't have the time to study 4,300 different religions. It would take 12 years if you studied one religion per day. It's a long, long, long time, and it's almost a silly task to try to take on. But because truth claims are exclusive, you only have to learn about one religion. Because if that one religion is true, everything else that contradicts it has to be false. All world religions can be summed up in just one sentence. If you do enough good, you might get to heaven. And this is every religion's motto. If you do X, Y, Z, if you pray uh, seven times a day and do all these things, then maybe, maybe you will be saved. 
Whereas the Bible says something different. In Romans 10, it says, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a much different claim. It doesn't have to do with your goodness. It doesn't have to do with how perfect you are, how smart you are. It has everything to do with Jesus and what he did on the cross and whether or not you believe in him or you reject him. So, what is the truth? God's word is the truth. That is the first conclusion I'm going to make for you today. This comes from John 17, 17. Jesus says, make them holy by your truth and teach them your word, which is truth. So we need to stand on the Bible. We need to be able to know that the Bible is, in fact, the word of God, and it is true. Because if the Bible is not true, everything else you know about God falls apart. And back to our theme verse, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, so the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So the Bible is given for us to equip us to handle these claims. It's given to equip us to carry out every good work that God asks of us. The second conclusion I want to make for us today is faith is belief in light of evidence. Lots of skeptics will say at Christians, you guys just follow blindly, and you have faith, which is a belief in lack of evidence. You believe, you don't have evidence to back it up, you just believe because you feel it. And here's uh, something interesting. Emotion, feelings, is good, and there's definitely a, a place for that, and God created us with feelings and, and emotions. But he also created us with minds to think logically about things and critically about things. And so we can also come to God with evidence, we can come to God with logic, and we can dive in to the skeptics' claims and see if they have any uh, reason to doubt Christianity. So Hebrews 11, 1 through 3, gives us a definition of what faith is. Faith is not blindly following after God. Paul says, faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. And through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. And by faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. So this is the biblical definition of faith. It's not blindly following with lack of evidence. It's following God in light of evidence. So I'm going to share 10 pieces of evidence with you today. And I know that seems like a lot, but we're going to try to skim through it just very, very quickly. And I'm going to give you guys some homework after today. I know we don't do that at Life Church very often, but as we talk about these pieces of evidence, I want you to circle, highlight, mark, whatever you need to do, get in your phone, and I want you to pick one thing today. Just one thing that stands out to you as, well, I never thought about it like that, or that's interesting. Circle it, highlight it, do what you need to do, and I want you to just take five minutes today or sometime this week and research a little bit about that and see if what I'm telling you is actually true. And then your second piece of homework is I want you to share that with someone. And I know that seems scary, but you don't have to do it in an argumentative way. You don't have to come at them with like fists and throw hands. Just say, hey, I learned something really, really interesting this week. Can I share that with you? Or hey, guess what I learned at church? And then go on to share it. You don't have to, to, to bash them. You don't have to argue with them. Just share what you learned. 
So we're going to give a bird's eye view of these 10 evidences. Just like when I went skydiving, I saw a bird's eye view of the ground beneath me. We're going to take a bird's eye view of all these evidences and breeze through them really, really quick. I want to show you guys just an illustration of what digging for the evidence looks like. I don't know if you guys know one of the seven wonders in the world is the Great Pyramid in Giza. But most people might not know this. There is the Great Sphinx right next to it. The Great Sphinx, at first, all we could see of it was just this head peeking out of the sand, some head of an ancient pharaoh somewhere. And then in 1817, I won't bore you guys with the names of these guys, but an archaeologist with 160 people dug up the chest of the Sphinx. He uncovered just a little bit more than what we had. And after many, many years of careful digging in 1887, the chest, the paws, the altar, the top of the plateau were finally made visible. And finally, in 1930, we were finally able to see the full Sphinx that we have today, the full length, the full width, and we measured it to be 240 feet long and 66 feet high. This huge, huge statue. It was always there. It was always there beneath the sand, but it took careful digging to uncover what was beneath. And so in the same way, I'd like to say Christianity, there's lots and lots of good reasons to believe in it. Lots and lots of good reasons to believe the Bible is the word of God, that God is real. But you might have to do just a little bit of digging to uncover it. And when you do, in light of that evidence, I think it'll strengthen your faith. And I think if you're a skeptic in here today, hopefully you look at that evidence and say, hmm, maybe there is something to Christianity. Maybe I should start to take this thing seriously. So the first piece of evidence I have for you today is in the category of internal consistency. So if the Bible is, uh, contradicts what it says in one passage, to another passage, to another passage, then it kind of falls apart, right? But if the Bible is consistent throughout the whole text, then it is great reason to believe that it's the inspired word of God. So the first evidence I have to share with you is 44 testimonies. Has anyone ever heard the claim that saying God is true because the Bible says so is circular logic? You guys ever heard that? You can't say that God is true because the Bible says so. You can't say the Bible is true because God declares the Bible is his word. Well, circular logic is only true if there's one source. But the Bible is more than just one source. The Bible is 66 books written by 44 different authors over a period of 1,500 years, writing uh, over 4,000 years of history. And it tells of a consistent storyline running all the way through from Genesis to Revelation. The story of God and what he has done for mankind by saving himself as a savior 2,000 years ago to die on a Roman cross to forgive us of our sins. And that one day he's going to come back and create a new world where there will be no more death, no more pain, and no more sorrow. The whole Bible is consistent through and through. And there are some claims we like to make that the Bible writers uh, tried to like use their own initiative, their own imagination, and just wrote things because they wanted people to believe in their one true religion to control them. But 1,500 years of 44 different authors writing what they think are their selfish desires, there would be a whole lot of contradictions in there. 2 Peter 1.20 says, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from a prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit 
and they spoke from God. So the claim that the prophets, the writers, spoke from their own understanding, their own imagination, the Bible says that is false. They did not speak from their own understanding. They spoke the words directly from God. They were moved by the Holy Spirit. This next thing is going to be pretty cool. Uh, There's a huge graphic uh, that covers all of the cross-references in the Bible. In October 2007, Christoph Romhild and Chris Harrison built this graphic using an AI system for you tech-savvy guys. And they took the 63,779 cross-references that you can find in your Bibles today, and they drew all the lines connecting these intricate cross-references between the 66 books of the Bible that we trust is the inspired Word of God. So human initiative, human understanding cannot explain all of these cross-references that are consistent throughout the Bible. It is an intricately woven story telling 4,000 years of history between 44 different authors over a period of 1,500 years across 66 books. That is an incredible testament to God's faithfulness. The next one I've got for you is gospel harmony. And I won't talk about this one very, very much. Um, But in the same way that 44 different authors is a good thing in the Bible, we have four gospel accounts. And some of these gospel accounts are missing some details. Some of them are the only ones that have a certain detail of the story. And it's actually a good thing. Because I don't know if if any of you guys know, like, uh, court cases, if a bunch of different witnesses have the same exact story, it shows the court that there's been collusion and they will disregard all the evidence. They will disregard that testimony. But if each person has a different variation of the story, it shows that they actually were there because they saw it from a unique perspective, from different angles, And maybe this person caught on to one thing, maybe this person caught on another thing, but they all tell the same story. So the four Gospels, some of them don't have all the details. Some of them are the only ones with the detail. And that's actually a great testament to its faithfulness. But there are a couple key events that are in each one of the Gospels. And they do have different unique perspectives. And these are the main uh, tenets of Christianity. They talk about Jesus' crucifixion on a Roman cross. They talk about his death, his burial, and his resurrection. All of those things are in all four Gospels. So the main crux of Christianity we could know is true. There's not anything missing. It's been recorded faithfully and accurately for us. So the next branch of evidence I want to talk about is scientific accuracy. So there's a concept called irreducible complexity. And evolution will try to explain that through genetic mutations and through survival of the fittest, the strongest species survives, and therefore we develop different organs, right? And then we go from fish to monkeys to humans. But you see, science cannot explain organs that are irreducibly complex, organs like your eye. If you think about our eye for one second, each one of your eyes processed 500,000 messages each and transmitted those to your brain. All of the light in this room that hits your eye is focused in by your cornea and beamed in through your pupils. Your pupils will shrink and expand depending on how bright the light is. And you have 130 million rod-shaped cells and 7 million cone-shaped cells that capture light intensity and convert that to color. And they send these pictures to your brain not only at the same time, but upside down. And your brain processes all those images without batting an eye. Pun intended. 
But when you do blink, your body actually creates just the right amount of moisture to get all that dust out of your tear ducts. And your eyelids close at one five thousandth of a second. So your eye is an incredible organ, and it is irreducibly complex. If you take one of the parts of the eye out, it ceases to function. So for evolution to work, it has to be a step-by-step-by-step process. And your eye cannot be a step-by-step process. It has to all be there, or it will not work. And the Bible says in Proverbs 20, ears to hear and eyes to see, both are gifts from the Lord. So the Bible says that God gave us our eyes. Evolution says, survival of the fittest did. Which one holds water? Another piece of evidence I have for you is soap. It might be kind of weird to think about soap being an evidence for Christianity. But God gave uh, the Jews a ritual of the water of purification. And you've probably heard the term of holy water before. But did you know that the water of purification was actually a medieval lye soap? In Numbers 19, God says that you need to burn a red heifer, mix its ash with water, which science would know when you render fat and burn that to ash. It creates a lye water, which is a basic solution. Not basic because it's simple, basic because it's the opposite of acidic. And basic solutions are tough on dirt, bacteria. And it also has uh, hyssop, cedar wood, scarlet wool, which would give this soap antibacterial properties. And so all this stuff basically makes a soap water. So the Jews would be able to wash their hands and it would kill bacteria, it would kill virus, it would wash away all the dirt and grime, and the fibers and the hyssop would act kind of like a loofah. So they would wash their hands after the priests would touch dead bodies or touch diseased patients, which makes a lot of sense because we know that disease can be transferred through touch. So God is very, very smart for giving the Jews the water of purification because you don't want to touch a dead body and not wash your hands. I don't know if you guys know this, but up until 150 years ago, our doctors did not use soap before performing surgeries. They thought it was foolish. They thought it was stupid. And there was a Hungarian physician named Ignaz Salmiwais who advocated for the use of soap in 1847, and he was ridiculed for his belief. They called him crazy, and he actually died in an insane asylum before they used soap in hospitals. And 30 years later, doctors finally realized that there is actually something to soap, that bacteria is transferred, and that was actually causing the hospital to lose patients. So thousands of years before our smart doctors realized that we needed to use soap, but God was commanding the Jews to use soap for the priests when they touched dead bodies, or before they ate, or after touching diseased patients. So I'm going to breeze through a couple more things. I might skip a couple because uh, they might run a little bit long. But there is what's called the Moabite stone. And this was found in 1993, and there was an inscription on this stone that talks about one of the kings of the house of David. So a lot of atheists did not think that King David was real. They did not see any extra biblical sources to back up the claims that King David is real. They did not see any sources to back up the claims that there is even a nation before Judah and northern Israel split. But when we found the stone in 1993 that 
that listed the names of the king, one of the kings of uh, the house of David, we know the Bible is actually accurate. So as we uncover evidence, our faith in the Bible is restored and strengthened. There's an interesting guy by the name of Flavius Josephus. He's got a really, really cool name. He lived from 37 AD to 100 AD. He was a first century Jewish historian who worked for the Romans. And he tried to instigate peace talks between the Romans and the Jews during their wars. But the Jews didn't really trust him because he worked for the Romans. And the Romans didn't really like him because he was a Jew. But he wrote a book called The Antiquity of the Jews, which includes references to the early church written in about 50 to 60 AD. And he talks about how Jesus performed extraordinary deeds, that he was a teacher, that he won over many Jewish and Greek converts, that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He writes about how he was accused and condemned under Pontius Pilate to be crucified. He writes that the disciples claimed to see him raise from the dead on the third day, and that this tribe of Christians was still present to the day of the writing. So Flavius Josephus was not a Christian. He was a Jew, and he thought the Christians were crazy. But by his writings, by his historical account, we can know that Jesus Christ really did claim to be the Messiah, that his disciples really did claim to see him rise from the dead. The next piece of evidence I have for us is the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is probably one of the most well-known ones. So in 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the Qumran Caves. And after its first discovery, we have since found 25,000 manuscripts. And if you would stack all these manuscripts from the floor up, they would reach over a mile high. That's a lot, a lot of evidence, a lot of manuscripts that our scholars have been digging through. And so we can look at those manuscripts today, and our scholars do. Every time they make a Bible translation, they, they cross-check all these manuscripts and the original Greek and Hebrew translations to make sure that what we have is the authentic Word of God. And you can look at these scripts if you want, if you want to study Greek and Hebrew for years and years. You can go and look at these manuscripts and see that what you have written in your Bible today is the same text that they had 2,000 years ago. Isaiah 48 says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. So the Bible has not disappeared. It has not been mistranslated over time. It's not this telephone game that the apostles whispered one thing to another, and now we have some completely different story. What we have today is the same story they had back in the first century, right when Jesus uh, was crucified and raised from the dead and he ascended to heaven. We have the same thing they had in the early church. The last piece of historical evidence I want to share with you guys is actually right in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, let me remind you. What does that mean? Let me remind you. That means he's talked about it before, right? Let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. I passed on to you what was most important and what has also been passed on to me. Paul didn't invent it. He learned it from something else. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. And then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. For I am the least of all the apostles, 
if in fact I'm even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted the church. So 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, I'm reminding you of something. Paul actually spent a whole year and a half with the Corinthian church before writing this letter. So he established sound doctrine. He established the church there. But also he says that I learned this from somewhere else. Where did he learn that from? Well, if you read the book of Acts, Paul actually visited Jerusalem in 37 AD. So just a couple of years after Christ's death, he visited Jerusalem, and that's where he met the apostles, Peter and James, for the first time. And so he is passing on this creed that they would share with the church, that Christ died for our sins, just as Scripture said. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. He was seen by Peter and then the twelve. He was seen by more than 500 witnesses at one time. And he was seen by James and later by the, all the apostles. This was a creed the early church used, and it can be dated as early as 37 AD. And some people even say it might be a little bit earlier than that. But within a couple of years of Jesus' death, we have the essential doctrine of Christianity, that Jesus Christ did in fact die on the cross. He raised from the dead. He was seen by many witnesses. 500 people is a lot of people, guys. Many witnesses at one time. All right, here's my favorite category of evidence. It's the category of prophetic accuracy. So God speaks through prophecy to all his people in the world so that we can know that he is truly God. Isaiah 45, 21. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. So God declares things from the past to the future. He declares things that are going to happen long before they happen. And he's very specific to the time, the place, the people in it, what would happen. Specific prophecies that happened hundreds and some thousands of years before. And they all came true. Isaiah made this prophecy 83 years before the Jews were taken into exile. He said that a conqueror named Cyrus would come and destroy a great nation, the great nation of Babylon, and he would subdue Egypt along with the rest of the known world. And Isaiah says that this man, Cyrus, would decide to let the Israelites go back to their home country for free, without any payment, no bribery. He would just let them go. And the prophecy actually talks a little bit more in detail about how Cyrus would conquer that the gates would be let down, and that they would walk down on a barren riverbed. Very, very specific prophecy of exactly how this would happen and who it would happen with. And this was 80 years before the Jews were taken to exile, 150 years before King Cyrus was even born, and 180 years before this prophecy was filled incomplete. So another uh, prophecy is Daniel's statue. If you guys ever read the story of Daniel, you see that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. He wouldn't tell anyone about it. And he said, if you guys are actually uh, magicians, you guys are actually prophets, you'll be able to tell me what I dreamed. And Daniel prays to God, and God gives him the interpretation of this dream. So this happened in 165 BC in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel tells him his dream, and he says that there is the statue with a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, a belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron and feet of iron and clay. And then Daniel gives the interpretation of the dream. He says that you, King Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. And there's going to be a kingdom that's going to come to replace you. And another kingdom after that will replace them. And then a fourth kingdom 
will replace them. And finally, there will be a stone that will topple all of it. So what happened? Daniel actually prophesied about 640 years of history with this interpretation of the dream. It was very specific because Babylon was conquered by Medo-Persia, Medo-Persia was conquered by Greece, and Greece was eventually conquered by Rome. And actually, in 286 AD, Emperor Diocletian decided to divide Rome into two kingdoms, and in 476 AD, it split into ten kingdoms. So if you guys know, the statue has two legs, two kingdoms, your feet have ten toes, ten kingdoms. This is a very, very specific prophecy detailing what kingdoms would take over Babylon, and that Rome would split into two, and then ten kingdoms after that. So this was hundreds of years before it happened. 640 years of history, he declared by this prophecy. There's even a better one, or I should say, I'm kind of cheating with this one. It's actually a lot of prophecies all grouped up in one. So there are 365 prophecies about Jesus' first coming. 365 prophecies in your Bibles about Jesus' first coming. And we could ask, what are the chances that a man could fulfill all those prophecies? You might try to calculate the math in your head. Someone already did. Professor Peter W. Stoner, in his book Science Speaks, writes about the probabilities of just one man fulfilling eight, just eight of the 365 prophecies. What are the probabilities of that? Well, some of these prophecies were the timing of Jesus' birth, that he was to be born in Bethlehem, that he be born from a virgin, he would be portrayed for 30 shekels of silver, the price of a slave, that he would be mocked, he would be crucified, that he would be pierced, and that he would die with thieves, but be buried in a rich man's grave. Those are very specific prophecies. So eight prophecies, what are the chances, this professor said, of one man fulfilling eight of these prophecies? It would be one in 10 to the 17th power. So that's one over 10 followed by 17 zeros. Not a chance. Not a chance any man could fulfill these prophecies. And if you add in that fact that some of these prophecies about the Messiah said that he is actually God himself who would come down and take on flesh. So you can't actually fulfill these prophecies unless you're God. Professor Peter W. Stoner also said after this study that any man who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. If you reject Christ, you're rejecting a fact proved more absolutely than any other fact. We have some facts that George Washington was our first president, that we have the Declaration of Independence, that we live in a country called the United States. But this fact of Jesus' death, burial, resurrection is proved more absolutely than any other fact we know in history. So back to our theme verse, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for training and correction, right, correction and training righteousness, so the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So God gives us the Bible, these 66 books written by 44 different authors we talked about. He gave us this book so that we can be equipped for every good work. So when people ask you for a reason for the hope that it's in you, we talked about 1 Peter 3.15, to give a defense for the hope that is in you. These evidence hopefully should prepare you for that. But here's the thing. Do you need to know all these pieces of evidence to be a Christian? 
Do you need to study for years and years and years and be super smart and be the top scholar of your day in order to defend Christianity? No. My homework for you is one, but you don't even need that. You can just share your testimony. If someone asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, tell them about your life journey. Tell them how Christ has brought you from loving sin to hating it. That he's changed you from addictions to breaking those addictions. That he has worked miracles in your life. And those are facts that you cannot argue with. So you don't need to know everything about God. You don't need to know everything about the Bible. You don't need to defend all the stuff. You just tell your testimony. Tell what Christ has done in your life. But sometimes it helps if you do have evidence, especially when you have a tough cookie to crack. Some people like to dig in. Some people like to argue. They like to throw all the stuff at you and put you on the ropes. And so maybe to say, hey, I don't know about that right now, but I can look into it and I can come back to you later. And that's pretty fair, right? I think most people respect that. So back to that great sphinx, <clears throat> we uncovered a lot of evidence today. And the Bible's always been there. All this stuff has always been true. God has always been the God of the universe. The Bible's always been God's holy inspired word. But as we dig and dig, just like they did with that great sphinx, and uncovered more and more of how big it truly is, as we dig through the evidence of Christianity, as we keep reading our Bibles, we discover more and more how great our God really is and how there is more than enough reason to believe in him and to come to a saving faith in Christ and know that he is the God of the universe who took away our sin. And he died for you on that cross to take away your sin. So some of us believe in God, but some of us have doubts, like I did when I was in high school. I had doubts about the Christian faith, doubts about the Bible, doubts about God. And I believed, but there was a part of me that had some doubts and some disbelief. And Jesus says in Mark twenty-two twenty-four, after the man says, have mercy on us and help us if you can. Jesus says, what do you mean if I can? Anything is possible if a person believes. And the father instantly cried out, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Yeah. So maybe that's your prayer today. Maybe you know just a handful of things about Christianity. You believe in God, but you have some doubts and you've tucked those away on the side, and you're not sure what to believe, God, I believe you, but help me overcome this unbelief. And the worship team will come up here in just a minute, and I'll pray for us. Um, God, I pray for the people in this room, all the Christians in this room that are going through doubts and questions and seasons of their life, uh, that you would help them with the unbelief that they have. And if there's anyone in this room that has not accepted you as your Savior, that you would show them that there's a tremendous amount of evidence pointing to you as the one true God. And there's more than enough reason to believe that you died for their sins and that they can be forgiven if they place their hope and trust in you. God, if we confess with our mouth that you are Lord and believe in our heart that you raised Jesus from the dead, then we will be saved. Lord, we believe in that promise. We thank you for everything you've done today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.